Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for Capital Link for organizing this wonderful conference and for inviting us to discuss such an interesting topic today. Today's speakers do not need an introduction as they're very well known uh, in the industry, but very briefly, we have Joe Hughes, who is the chairman and CEO of Shipowners Claims Bureau, who are the managers of the American P&I Club and my colleague, uh, we have Mark O'Neill, the CEO of Columbia uh, Ship Management, who has an impressive uh, uh, career for more than 30 years, and he's also been the head of the international law firm of Reed Smith, the German shipping team. And as a recovering lawyer, I want to congratulate him for leaving the legal field. Uh, we have uh, Gary Vogel, who also do, does not need an introduction. He's the chief executive officer of Eagle Bulk Shipping with more than 30-year experience in the industry. Very impressive. We're looking forward to his comments. We have Mr. Martin Wade, who is the CEO of Green Growth Shipping and he, with more than 40 years of experience, and he's coming all the way from Singapore with an impressive, impressive shipping career over the world. And last but not least, we have Kevin Humphreys, who is the general manager uh, and merchant gas carrier segment sales of Vazilla, uh, everyone. And he also has a very impressive career in the shipping industry. But before entering the private sector, he was an agent for an FBI. And considering the fact that I'm Bulgarian, it's not an accident that he's on his panel, as Bulgarians are famous spies. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, turning to the, uh, everyone uh, here knows that in uh, 2020, the IMO uh, has implemented a deadline from January 1st to implement a different, uh, different limit for uh, sulfur emissions. And I'll turn my uh, questions first to Mr. Gary Falcon and Martin Wade. What are the implications of the regulations from a ship owner's perspective? So I'll start. I mean, the, the basic implications are that as of January 1st, uh, emissions need to be uh, cut from 3.5% sulfur to 0.5. There's two ways to comply. One is burning a 0.5% sulfur fuel, a reduction uh, from the 3.5, and the other is to install an exhaust gas scrubber, which, which uh, takes the sulfur out of the exhaust gas. So um, th those are really the two options to be compliant. Um, from a ship owner standpoint. And, and the other aspect I think I'd point out is that our view, even whichever way you decide to go with this, and of course we think it's, it's, it's extremely important and beneficial for the environment. Um, sulfur emissions uh, have significant health, uh, health implications, but also a benefit for shipping is that higher fuel prices, and we do believe that the vast majority of ships Dry bulk ships, according to DMB, says about 8.5% of the fleet will be fitted at that time, will be burning low sulfur fuel, and more expensive fuel leads to slower steaming, which takes effective supply out of the market. So there's a few implications, and there's really two paths in which an owner can go to comply. Mr. Wayne. Yeah, I, I agree with Gary. It, at the end of the day, it is the future, cleaner fuel, where we have to go. But also, as Gary said, fundamentally, it's going to be good for shipping. It's going to, whether you scrub or not, it's going to be a positive uh, outcome. And, and as I say, we'll come to it. I think 99% of the fleet won't be scrubber fitted, especially on, on the dry side, smaller side. And everyone will be slow steaming. I think the figure is for every one knot slower, you take about 8% of the fleet out. So this is quite a game changer, what we're about to see. 
Very interesting. And uh, again, Mr. Wogan, Mr. Wade, what steps have your companies uh, respectively taken to comply with the implementation of the regulation? Yeah, so, so our company, we announced what we call a scrubber initiative about a month, a little over a month ago now, where we've uh, contracted to put scrubbers on a minimum of 19 ships and 18 options out of a fleet of 47. So that's 80% of our fleet uh, that we intend, up to 80% that we intend to uh, fit with scrubbers. You know, from, from a standpoint, compliance, of course, is, is, is absolute in our mind. There's, there's no question about that. And then ultimately it came down to a decision how, how to do that. And uh, early days, you know, we had a lot of concerns that we needed to effectively get comfortable with. Uh, one was the implementation date, that this was actually coming on January 1st. Uh, I think if we look towards, for instance, ballast water treatment regime, that, that had a few fits and starts along the way. Uh, we, we are very confident that January 1st implementation date is set in stone now. Um, and also the availability for heavy fuel oil. Early days, there was question around that. If, if only, call it 99% of the fleet is now burning low sulfur fuel, are you going to be able to, to purchase heavy fuel? The uptake on scrubbers has been uh, significant in certain parts of, of it, within dry bulk as an example. Again, uh, uh, using DMB as, as the reference, they were 35% of the Cape Fleet by early 2020 will be fitted. While it's smaller, much smaller in ours, about 2% of the Supermax Ultramax, you know, because of that uptake, we, we're, we're very confident that heavy fuel will be available for quite a long time. And, and in fact, uh, Shell just last week came out and, uh, with their offering of where it will be. So those were things that were important for us to get comfortable. And once we did that, uh, we believe that the economics are, 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 are extremely compelling. And, and as a public company and there to create shareholder value, we thought that uh, moving early was an important aspect as well to be ready for January 1st. Mr. Wade, what about... We, we, we conversely uh, are not going that, that route. We have a slightly different fleet to Gary's. We have a mixture of handies and, and super ultramaxes. Um, we also have uh, basically all our fleet on the dry side is, is Japanese built, so has the ability to, to, to slow steam in, in a very economical fashion. So I think people have to look at their fleet composition. There are 350 active bunker ports in, in the world and it's a matter of how many of them will actually have the HFO available or will the majority have MGO and where do you have to get it? So it is going to be interesting. As Gary said, there's a lot more people going that route. The fuel will be there, but the way we trade and, uh, on our particular uh, segments, we, we just feel more comfortable, slow steaming. We have the ships that, that can do it. And on the tanker side, again, the MR market, how we trade them, where we uh, tramp them, Say we, we just felt that, that in a particular size and segment that the scrubber wasn't the route. And again, putting aside the fact that, you know, I, I still don't really believe in, in open loop scrubbers pumping it into the sea. Long term, there has to be, be a better solution. And uh, ships with scrubbers steaming at full speed, greenhouse gases, it's, it'll be interesting to see how, how long the, uh, the gap on, on the fuel lasts. But as I keep on saying, it's going to be great for shipping, irrespective. Thank you very much. Mr. Humphreys, what percentage of global fleet, of the global fleet will have scrubbers by 2020? Sure, that's a great question. I think that's on most people's mind. We have a couple different ways we, we model this. I think the, uh, the DNV numbers from this morning are, are quite good. One of the best analysis I've seen. If you weren't there, they're, they're estimating about 1,550 that will be installed, 1,550 vessels installed by January 1st, 2020. 
we also look at it from the standpoint as an OEM of what is the industry capacity to install, the actual manpower and capacity in the yards. And, and prior to that DNV report, we were estimating 1,500. So, so they seem to be lining up. We just anticipate some of those slipping a little bit into 2020, first quarter, just by the nature of these projects don't always go as smooth as, as we anticipate. So th that's still a relatively uh, low percentage of the overall global fleet, although a slightly higher percentage of global fuel consumption, because these are tend to be the larger vessels uh, getting the scrubbers. Um, so you're talking about so somewhat less than 3% of global merchant fleet, uh, may maybe 7 8%, 9% of global fuel consumption. So still seeing a dramatic decrease in heavy fuel globally. Thank you very much. What about by 2023? Yeah, so, so one of the other interests is what, what do owners think? I mean, that's the, the signal that, that uh, orders in the out years are, are going to, uh, what are they seeing on, on fuel prices in the Delta? We do see some order book uh, running out through 2023, um, but, it, but in the several hundred vessels then. So the order book going out is, is, is relatively small. It seems most owners have wanted to take advantage of what the anticipated deltas will be on the fuel price come January 1st, 2020. Um, and so most of these we're seeing are owners that have programs for scrubbers uh, fit with regular dry dock schedules. So they're going to keep with their dry dock schedules and install at that time, or new builds are making up those out year order books. So we do anticipate a big drop in activity after first, first second quarter 2020. Thank you. Mr. Hughes, what are the implications for the P&I clubs for the 2020 sulfur cap? Well, Boriana, um, can you hear me, by the way? It is working, isn't it? Um, yes, very good. One of, the, one of the first questions I suspect that most owners will have of their P&I clubs is, am I covered in the event that I'm fined uh, for some reason for having not use the correct fuel or my scrubbers not working properly and so on. And the short answer to that, rotters that we P&I clubs managers are, is no, you're not in general. Um, P&I club cover within the group is, I mean, for fines and penalties, is, is relatively limited. It will apply to uh, issues like smuggling, cargo fine, overlanding, short landing. Um, it will apply to uh, obviously, oil pollution probably in the best known context. But other than that, uh, fines are only covered usually by, on the discretion of the board of directors. And that discretion generally in relation to an operational matter like a, a fine is relatively rarely dispensed in favor of uh, the member usually. I mean, in an egregious case that went to the board where it was clear that a member had been uh, particularly badly treated or where the fine had been raised in circumstances that were quite unjust, then there would be a chance indeed that uh, perhaps not the fine, but certainly the legal expenses incurred in relation to it might be covered. Um, there are, so that's the bad news. I mean, the good news, of course, is there are other implications that might arise in the context of using fuel, for example, that might be off spec. Um, or in circumstances, and I'm not a marine engineer, where scrubbers created a problem with the engines, and you might have um, a marine casualty arising from that, and that would obviously have implications so far as hull underwriters and liability underwriters, P&I clubs, were concerned. But uh, the issue of fines per se in relation to uh, the use of non-compliant fuel or faulty scrubbers uh, is not something that would in the ordinary way fall 
within the scope of club cover, absent discretion being exercised by a board of directors in favor of the individual member. And do you see any <coughs> implications where the clubs would get involved? Well, they might, if, as I mentioned earlier, if there were a, a major casualty that arose right. out of a breakdown of an engine, um, and which might lead to a grounding, which might lead to uh, all kinds of liabilities arising uh, for the ship owner. And of course, that would equally be an issue for hull underwriters. The fact that um, the, the cause of a loss of that kind uh, arose from the use of off-spec oil would not in itself defeat such a claim, obviously. Uh, but the, the uncertainties that apply to the use of uh, the new fuels might, at, and or you know, the efficiency of scrubbers and the effect they might have on engines that have been retrofitted, um, could create marine casualties capable of coverage by hull underwriters and their P&I clubs. In addition, there might be disputes arising between owners and charterers in regard to the specification of oil, uh, fuel oil, uh, that was the charterer's responsibility to supply. And those um, disputes could be subject to uh, FD&D, freight demurrage and defense coverage of the clubs, which is a legal expenses coverage uh, that is commonly bought by the shipping community in parallel with their P&I entry. Indeed. Can, can, can I just, yes, can I just comment uh, from, from a, a manager's point of view? We, we manage 360 vessels and uh, frequently asked by our clients, well, well, tell us what to do. And uh, there was a, an interesting debate on scrubbers this morning, uh, looking at it from a, a different aspect. And I've heard uh, what my colleagues on the, the panel have said today. We, we advocate very much a, a wait and see approach. And uh, unless you have a larger vessel on a long-term time charter that makes absolute economic sense that you will make the recovery of the capital outlay, there is simply too much, we believe, there is simply too much uncertainty. Prices of scrubbers will come down. They always do once the, the, the deadline uh, is passed. We don't know what the fuel differentiation, the cost and the, uh, the fuel differentiation will, will be. Uh, we don't know what certain country's view will be, for instance, to uh, open loop scrubbers. It may well be that they go down the line of China, which is mooting to have those types of scrubbers banned. Uh, equally, we don't know the environmental uh, answer. You go take a look at the coastline, the Baltic coastline of Sweden, once the ice is melted, and see what soot leaves, what, what pollution the soot leaves uh, along the coastline. And I can assure you, it will be very quickly a new debate as the environmentally friendliness of those types of those types of scrubbers. So there's simply too much uh, in issue at the moment, and a, and a wait and see. Unless it's unless there is a compelling argument, you have those types of long-term time charters where you will recover. Uh, wait and see is probably no bad no bad advice. Okay, thank you very much for this uh, very insightful covering. In, indeed, Bimco actually met on September 18 to discuss a new clause in conjunction with the regulations in question, and they'll be meeting again in October, and the working group uh, has advised that they're working on a language which perhaps will be of more assistance of honors. But my next question is uh, uh, to you, Mr. O'Neill, again. Uh, so can you comment on performance optimization, including digitalization, when you're looking ahead? 
Uh, okay, so we're, le we're leaving the scrubbers, but it, it kind of feeds in to, to that at the end. Right. I think uh, the whole digitalization debate of, of last year is um, to some extent has to some extent run its course, and we're now looking, you know, if digitalization uh, is a means, what is the end? And I think optimization is very much the end. All of us, all operators, all managers, uh, are looking to optimize their services and digitalization the same way as a word processor was 15, 20, 30 years ago, whenever they came in, uh, was considered revolutionary. Uh, actually, they were evolutionary, and, and digitalization is, is evolutionary in the same way. We're, it's all about optimization. We uh, are delivering, at the end of this month, what we call our performance optimization control room, and from that will flow all of the good digitalization concepts that, that previous, previous com conferences have uh, talked about. Safety optimization, hugely, uh, hugely important, as we heard um, by Professor Henderson at lunchtime today. Those of us who uh, attended that lunch, very uh, big focus on safety. Speed and consumption optimization, and digitalization certainly helps in that. It's vital that we squeeze out every last drop of value from, from what we do. Delay at load port and discharge port optimization, huge time is wasted. And someone said to me, there's no, someone said at one of the panels today, um, you know, time costs money, all time costs money, of course it does. Crew rotation and crew training optimization, preventative maintenance uh, optimization through sensors, drones, etc. All this can be controlled through uh, uh, performance optimization control, control rooms in the, in the way that we're trying to uh, achieve, and also operational uh, optimization from our clients. You know, we all have clients, and clients will have their own parameters that they want to put through. So I think the, the, the shift, the drive now for optimization, even from the largest liners that have squeezed out every possible cost saving they can and now have to look at new structures to optimize, that this is very much going to be the, the focus and the buzzword going forward because certain models will have to be changed to optimize. They've optimized as much as they can and they're still not making a profit and therefore they're going to have to look at the structures, whether they be vertical structures, uh, more interesting collaborations, consolidations, etc. but the structures will have to be changed to, to optimize. So I think optimization is a, is a, is a, a, a big thing going forward. Indeed. Now, I have a question to the whole panel, and, um, and uh, since we are ahead of time, uh, please take your time to uh, answer it, but uh, please uh, do not exceed more than two or three minutes. What are the economic implications on the regulations, and do they outweigh the positive impact on the environment? Maybe I'll take Go it. Ahead. I'd like to just respond. Mark, Mark made a comment that you, you should wait because of uncertainty around various aspects, unless you can lock in a charter and, and make money on a return. I think they're two different things because, uh, for, first of all, uh, Scrubbers is, is time-tested, uh, proven technology. Uh, it's worked for a long time on shore-based. Um, there's, there's a, there's, there's, um, you know, it, it takes advantage of the alkalinity in seawater an open loop scrubber and things like that. But when we talk about the fuel spread, the fuel spread exists today. And, and, the, and the proxy for the point one is about 200. And on January 1st, the vast majority of ships stop buying heavy fuel. And supply and demand, as demand drops, the expectation is that fuel price will drop. Conversely, all these ships will be buying uh, 
uh, low sulfur fuel, 0.5 fuel. So the idea, the, the, our belief and in general is that that spread will widen. And even today, you can go in and lock in spreads either through uh, opportunistic charters who are looking to take advantage of scrubber fitted ships or also through derivatives on a spread trade. So you can capture that, but, but our, our view is that that will widen further than it is today. So I think it's, it's, there are other ways to do it other than just having a charter come to you and ahead of time and say, we'll pay you for this if you put it on a ship. So. Thank you. How about the question about the uh, uh, economic implications and financial impl implications on the implementation of regulations? How would they affect? Well, the I think Gary's saying it, it, economically it makes it's 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 compelling. Well, I mean, we're our, we run a, f a fleet of supermaxes and ultramaxes, and conventional wisdom is it makes sense on the larger ships. But I'll speak about ours, right? With a 300-hour fuel spread, we believe the payback period on a scrubber investment is 1.5 years. Uh, conversely, if you look at it the other way in terms of, you know, effectively reducing your break-even, that's reduces it by about $4,000 per day, de-risking uh, your cash break-even. Those are really compelling uh, return metrics from an investment standpoint. And again, a lot of people feel that that spread will even widen, which is another reason why we believe from, from an economic standpoint, being ready on January 1st is, is really important because if, if you do wait, and I, I I agree with you that you have much more visibility if you wait one or two years. That, that fuel spread likely will narrow over time, and, and so therefore the returns will, will as well. So that's why, that's why we went ahead when we did to, to ensure that our scrubbers are fitted prior to January 1st from an economic return standpoint. I mean, there, there are, as, you, as we all know, there are complicated algorithms to work out when is the payback, and, and 1.5 years is, is uh, you know, certainly probably at the earlier uh, of the of the spread of time, um, we've seen with ballast water treatment the the technology concerned uh, the price of the technology concerned is dropping not free falling but uh, dropping considerably and we we suspect the same will occur with with scrubbers as more and more um, become approved more and more methods become approved and, and are readily available I think it's slightly academic now because it would be very very difficult even if you wanted to put scrubbers on to to achieve the deadline so you're over that anyway but for hopefully you're over that the right reasons you've done your analysis and, and and the wait and see is probably no is no bad thing there after 2020 there will be uh, probably increased much more increased capacity to put scrubbers on board if it makes uh, makes sense but I'm, I'm also interested in the environmental argument I mean a lot of the listed companies are going down the hedging or the uh, the, the route that we, we have to for shareholder value put scrubbers on board I, I would be interested to see just how this environmental story plays out because it may just be that certain scrubbers um, open loop uh, are not as environmentally friendly as they're initially thought to be and, and there may then be a, a, a case of well you know do we have to change those scrubbers or do we have to enhance their, their, their performance or, or, or change their configuration so it's interesting it's, it's very fluid the debate is very fluid and, and I think being flexible is no bad thing either. And how would the how would the regulations affect global fuel consumption, Mr. Humphreys? Well, I, I think the numbers I mentioned earlier. I mean, we're going to see this very dramatic drop in heavy fuel demand come January 1st. I mean, whether it's you know two and a half percent of global fleet or three and a half, we're still going to see a very dramatic drop. So we're not really in the fuel distribution side of the world, we're in the environmental uh, compliance side of the world. 
And so, but, but I think from the standpoint and, and all our discussions with the refiners as well, not just the owners, um, that we're frankly still trying to figure this out a little bit. Where's the distribution gonna be? It's certainly incumbent upon owners, I would think, uh, whichever path you go to ensure that supply is set. Um, uh, heavy fuel, surely in larger ports, you, you'll be okay, but, but when you look at your trading patterns, uh, I think planning ahead, if you do have scrubbers, would be very incumbent upon the owners. Can I comment? Actually, yes, for, yes, well, I mean, they said, well, I, well, of course I mean, shipping can. economics is way beyond my pay grade, personally. We insurance folk are mere hemp and homespuns by comparison to the people who actually are in the industry. But I suppose one of the concerns is that, you know, there might be, it, with this major change of, uh, of fueling and other changes, obviously, with the retrofitting of scrubbers and so on, that you might have uh, problems with main engines going forward. I mean, people have spoken to me a bit about that being seen already to some extent. And that might have uh, a knock-on effect on the incidence of major claims, for which obviously underwriters, both Hull underwriters and P&I underwriters, will have to respond. We certainly don't ha hope that that's the case, because over the last several years, the results on the marine insurance markets, by and large, notwithstanding the rates have been coming down a great deal, the results overall in, a, in claims terms have been relatively favorable. Uh, that may be changing a bit, but I think the hope among the underwriting community is that uh, this doesn't create problems in regard to major losses over the years ahead while that transition of fueling in, and so on is taking place. Thank you very much. So we have almost five minutes to spare, and I would like to open the floor to questions. Yes, please. Do we have a microphone? Hi, uh, Nikos from Seabury Capital. I have two questions. One is you've mentioned the wait and see strategy. There's different types of wait and see. There's the wait and see of doing all your homework in advance and waiting for some of the unknowns to clarify. And then there's the wait and see of literally doing nothing until it's too late. Um, so I'd like to maybe get some clarification on where you stand on that. Uh, and the other is for the entire panel is uh, maybe for Gary that are moving into finance or into the scrubbers. Um, how do you plan on financing? Maybe is it through charters, through how it is, et cetera? Yeah, sorry. Um, just to, to clarify the, the, the wait and see, if, if it is compelling economically, you, you have a, a vessel of a, a, a sufficient size in sufficient employment, long-term uh, employment, to enable the sort of payback that uh, Gary was talking about, then uh, once you do it, for sure. Uh, but if that is not the case, uh, then given the uncertainties that still are, are out there, wait and see is, 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 must be the, the, the right answer, uh, because prices of scrubbers will come down, uh, the differentials in the different fuel types are not known yet what they will be at any stage during even that 1.5-year time period. So it may be the case that, that there is that huge differential at the start point, uh, not uh, in, in the middle point or the end point. So uh, you, you, can't get, you can't get slots now anyway, so you, you should all have taken your strategic decisions and gone through the algorithms. And, and, and this is, whilst it is science, it's not rocket science, to work out whether scrubbers are suitable for your particular vessel types in the particular trades at the particular age in the particular geographical regions that they that, that they operate in it's it's well rehearsed arguments that will give you the answers so it's not a um, uh, no one needs to sit out there and, and, and or shouldn't 
would hope, sit out there and worry about should we have done something that we haven't done, uh, that we haven't arranged yet. You should have all have made that analysis. Thank you. Thanks. I'll, uh, yes. I'll, I'll answer those yes. two questions. In terms of finance, actually, we're, we've, uh, we have uh, quite a few ships within a, within a uh, subsidiary with a, a, a $200 million bond. We've asked for an amendment to use asset sale proceeds to finance scrubbers within that uh, collateral package, and that's live as we speak on my way to Europe tonight. Um, and then in terms of, you know, uh, call it more traditional first lien debt, I think the easiest way is an increase in first lien debt because you don't have intercreditor issues. And, and I think at this point uh, the belief is at least that the value of the, of, the, of the collateral will increase at least by the price of the scrubber, at least that's pretty much how most people or lenders are, are viewing it that we're speaking to. So those are, those are kind of the two areas that we've gone on, but nothing's been done yet. Um, in terms of getting people to pay for it, you know, we, we are, as I mentioned earlier, we operate our own ships, uh, much like Martin does. We're an owner-operator. And because of that, we, we try and operate, we mostly operate on voyage basis. We're paid a per ton basis to carry cargo. And effectively, what I pay for fuel my business, my, my problem sometimes, but, but in, in the case of a scrubber fitted ship where we think fuel prices will be low, it's my advantage. And if I'm competing with 97 out of 100 ships are burning low sulfur fuel, that will be the, by far the dominant factor in pricing. And effectively, I need to be probably five cents cheaper in order to get the business. So we believe we will garner effectively 100% of that because that fuel price is our, is our, is our cost as part of the prosecuting the voyage as an owner. Conversely, if you're a tonnage provider, um, then you're effectively saying, I have a ship and it has a scrubber. My ship is worth this much more than if it didn't have a scrubber, and now you're in a situation with willing buyer, willing seller. And ultimately, we'll, what percentage of that full value will you get? So our focus already is we prefer voyage business unless we get what we would say a premium to voyage basis for time charter, and that will only become more demonstrative uh, when we get into scrubber-fitted vessels. Thank if you. I can add on the finance side, we, I mean, we don't finance our, ourselves through Wartzilla. However, we have helped owners coordinate debt through Finvera, the Finnish Import-Export Bank, or GEIC, the Norwegian Import-Export Bank, uh, where our headquarters is and where our, our scrubber production is, is based out of. So. Thank you. We had one other question. I'm Jason Silver from Platts Ocean Intelligence. Um, I was wondering about um, the recent uh, epidemic of uh, fuel contamination and um, how, what, what sort of effect it's had on any of you and also does that have any effect on your planning for 2020? It's an interesting, it's obviously, it hit the market coming out of Houston as well. This was tough and, and People are trying to work out exactly what the issues are and, and what's happened. It surprised people. Going forward, there's been a lot of scare about will we be able to find suitable fuels, how can you blend them. We've been switching to low sulfur now for several years every time we hit an eco area with, with no issues at all for the engine. So, so it is out there, but, but from an owner, obviously we're not going the scrubber route. We're already discussing engine manufacturers. We use one bunker supplier exclusively. We're sitting them with them next year and making damn sure that we are in a position to try and take that chance out. But there obviously is an element, certain parts of the world, you don't quite know what blended fuel you're gonna get. And if you have to segregate in tanks, it could be a nightmare. We, uh, you know, as a, as a young lawyer years ago, I sort of cut my cloth on 
bunker disputes, and in those days it was specification, and the bunkers either conformed to a particular specification or they didn't. It, then I think we had the first fitness for purpose case uh, where there was an ignition quality issue with the fuel that just didn't show up on any of the tests but caused a, a, a massive engine failure uh, mid-Atlantic, you know, which was a, a terrifying uh, ordeal for, for all those on board. Now, uh, yeah, the situation hasn't changed. You know, we go from uh, uh, one epidemic of, of poor quality fuel to, to, to the next one. I think the, the answer is certainly internally within uh, Colombia. We are looking at the test parameters that we currently employ or require from the laboratories to try to identify these trace elements uh, which go under the radar in normal um, fuel bunker quality analysis. And I think that is uh, to a certain extent necessary because you will just not pick up some of these trace elements that can, be, that can cause catastrophic main engine failure. Ignition quality being one of them, you have to look at a number of indicators that are outside the normal parameters. So I think this is a, 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 a really interesting area, but I think the latest uh, number of incidents has caught, uh, reignited the debate, and, and I think it's, it's probably necessary to widen the parameters, the test parameters. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree, and I think fuel management is, is come to the forefront as an important aspect in terms of how the process in each company, how you go about it, and also fuel testing because the basic tests don't turn these things up. But that's true whether you're going to be burning heavy fuel or, or, or new low sulfur, and, and all the problems that have been happening have been on, on, on the heavy fuel. So, you know, more, more focus on it is absolutely imperative, and there's a number of groups in, you know, within the industry already getting together as owners trying to figure out how best to, to address this because it's, it's a universal issue we all have to deal with. And here, here from marine underwriters, of course, who will deal with any casualties that result from these big breakdowns caused by the kinds of contaminated fuel. I, I was always shocked by what you actually find when you do the trace element analysis, what you actually find in the bunkers, and it is really the case that a lot of chemicals that would cost a fortune to dispose of environmentally are, mi are mixed with these bunkers and, and, and burnt in engines which, you know, uh, in, in low quantities can, can take them. Um, but it does, it does take place, of course it does. Thank you very much, and of course it will depend on the terms of the Charter Party as to who is responsible for supply of bunkers. Thank you very much for the excellent comments. Thank you for being a great audience, and we are almost on time with only two minutes. Over to you. Thanks. Well done.